and through the written word we may behold the living word, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Do please sit down. Well, we've got a tale here, actually, actually of three vineyard parables. You know, Matthew's clearly got a sort of got something going in his mind on this, or it's something that actually the people of Israel at that point would have been very familiar with. It was immediately recognisable. Now, we're in chapter 21 of Matthew's Gospel. And this is the culmination of the third of the parables of, that feature vineyards. And it's the harshest and the most difficult one of them all. Immediately before it, we've got the parable that's normally known as the parable of the two sons. But again, the father says to uh, one son, uh, please go into the vineyard and help with the harvest. And son says, no, I'm not going goes off in a sock somewhere. But he changes his mind later and thinks, well, actually, I should go. And so he does go. But in the meantime, father has said to the second son, I'd like you to go in the vineyard and help with the harvest. Oh, certainly, Dad. I'll, I'll, I'll go straight away. But he didn't. And Jesus says, well, which one actually obeyed the father? Go back a chapter before that, and you've got the parable that we call the labourers in the vineyard, where the owner of the vineyard goes to the marketplace first thing in the morning. The way in which um, people were hired in those days, and it's harvest time, and he needs workers in his vineyard. And so he picks fit and able-looking workers and sends them into the vineyard and guarantees them a day's pay. He comes back a little bit later because clearly there's a lot more work to be done and there's nothing up there. And he finds some people still in the marketplace who um, perhaps they got up a bit late um, but hadn't been given a job. So he hires them as well. And he comes back twice more until an hour before sunset. And there's still people there. Well, why are you hanging? Well, well, nobody's employed us. Well, possibly because you didn't get up and you've been drinking all day. But if you want a job, it's yours into the vineyard. I'll pay you a decent wage, off you go. And of course they all get paid the same wage, which really upsets those who were there first. So three vineyard stories, but this one would be immediately recognisable to a Jewish audience about how an owner had made himself a vineyard, had dug it out, had built a wine press, put a tower in it, because this would be would bring back immediately to their mind the prophet Isaiah, who said, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the middle of it and hewed out a wine vat. He expected it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now inhabitants of Jerusalem and people of Judah judged between me and my vineyard what more was me that could I have done. And that passage finishes, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the people of Judah. 
He expected justice but saw bloodshed, righteousness but heard a cry. A passage that was well known to the people who were listening to it. And so this particular one, the wicked tenants of the vineyard, who when the owner sends his slaves, abuse them, kill them, and when the second lot comes, they do the same thing. And then he sends his son. Of course, looking at it from our perspective now, it appears that the allegory is quite obvious. And particularly if you were a Jew, the allegory is quite obvious as well. The first load of servants were the former prophets, and the second load of servants were the later prophets. Remember Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who stonest the prophets, how I would have gathered you under my wings as a hen gathers its chicks. There was a long history of abusing the prophets. And these, all these bells would be ringing in people's minds at this point. The Son, of course, we would see as the Messiah. In their day, they would see it as a deliverer of some sort, looking for the future. I'll come back to that in a moment. But was it plausible? Was it a story that could have happened? And the sad thing is, yes, it could, and it did. There were many absentee landlords in the day who would build up you know, their plant, their productive vineyard, then they'd go back to Rome or somewhere and live a life of luxury and expect the, the profits from the vineyards to come back to them. It wouldn't be the only one they had, I shouldn't think. And of course, this was deeply resented, as it would be in many countries today to find foreign firms actually making a profit out of the labours of the people who, who lived there and actually were not getting a share of the profits. And because of the way the law was set up in Roman law, and it's not that dissimilar to what might happen today, killing the son could have been a very clever move. Because if the owner then dies and there's no son, well, who owns the vineyard? Because normally the rules would be, it would be, there'd be no question about it, it would have to go to the son. And the way in which Roman law worked at that point, possession was nine points of the law. If you were the group that was actually in possession of it and nobody else could prove a title to that land, it became yours. Now, they could be rumbled, of course. You might have got another son. Maybe he doesn't die. Maybe, you know, there's all sorts of things that go wrong. But it's plausible. And apparently it had happened. I wonder what the Pharisees and the, uh, and the scribes were thinking at that point, having heard this parable, probably saying to one another, he's not getting at us, is he? This is a bit uncomfortable. Where's it going next? And it's where it goes next that, if you like, is the killer punch. But Jesus said, haven't you read the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? It's the Lord's doing in our eyes. Well, we might think, that's a strange, how did he sort of get from, 
um, labourers in vineyards to cornerstones and things. But to a Jew at that point, immediately another set of bells would start ringing that this was a wonderful prophecy from of old, from the book of Daniel. It was a dream of Nebuchadnezzar, the king at the time, um, with um, Daniel and his friends in exile um, there at the time as well. And Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and commanded sort of all the wise people um, in the kingdom. Uh, they had to come and tell him the meaning of the dream, but he wouldn't tell them what the dream was. A bit unfair. And then he said, well, if you're no good, sort of, if you can't tell me what the dream is as well, you're no good as prophets and soothsayers. I'm going to put you all to death because I'm not paying for you, uh, you lot of rabble hanging around the place who can't, actually clearly can't work out what a dream is. And so there's a process put in hand to gather all of these people together and ultimately kill them. Didn't get there until Daniel hears of it. And Daniel talks to his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You'll probably remember them. They feature in sort of fiery furnaces and all sorts of things. And they talk together and they pray to the God of heaven. Lord, speak to me and tell me what I should do. And in a vision, Daniel is told what Nebuchadnezzar's dream was. And so he sends a message through the, actually the chief executioner, uh, go back to Nebuchadnezzar and say, on a bit, you know, you just put all this lot to death. I can interpret your dream. And so he goes to the king and says, your dream was this. You saw a great statue stood there and the head was of gold and it was magnificent and the shoulders were of silver and the chest and the waist was of bronze and the hips and the legs were of iron and the feet were of a mixture of iron and clay. And you, O Lord Nebuchadnezzar, you are the kingdom of gold at the top. You are the greatest and the most preeminent kingdom in our world at the time. Now, obviously Nebuchadnezzar could see that uh, life, was, life was going to get worse later on, but it was all right for him because he was in charge. And he, so he was so pleased to know all this and know that this God of, of Daniel's was able to explain it, that he put Daniel in a position of great power. But then Daniel says to him, and here is what happens next. A stone will come and will strike the feet of the statue. If you remember, it was iron and clay mix, so it was fragile. It wasn't a very good construction. And the whole thing comes tumbling down. Ultimately, it'll be destroyed. And this stone that came and destroyed the statue grows into a great mountain that fills the whole earth. And the Jewish people interpreted this as meaning that all the kingdoms of the world will come to an end and God will provide his kingdom in some shape or form. The stone that will come and finally destroy the hated last kingdom, the brittle one, the one that was just of iron and clay, which in Jesus' time they would have seen as the rule of the Romans um, in their land. And so immediately there's this great sense of excitement that here is Jesus saying the fulfilment of Daniel's prophecy is about to happen. 
but not in the way they were expecting. One of the things you, you need to do when you read the Gospel passages, not only work out actually what Jesus was saying at the time to the people who heard him, but also see if you can uh, discover why that Gospel writer wrote that set of, of words down, picked that particular incident. What did it mean to, the, to Matthew's community, we'll call him? Matthew, who we presume is the writer of this Gospel, who was writing it somewhat later, after the fall of the temple and the destruction of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem. The whole Jewish cultus had come to an end in that sense. And so Matthew was writing in that context. And so to the, the small Jewish Christian community, Matthew was saying, God has vindicated you. His promises have come true. The stone that has shattered the empires of the earth will now grow into a mighty kingdom to be on earth. And the stone that the builders rejected is the head of the corner. Jesus taught about a new temple and a new earth, about the new temple being a temple made of brick, made of human beings. And St Paul picks this up as well, and they would be aware of that. And here they are being told that actually this stone that struck the statue, if you like, in, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream and destroyed all the kingdoms of the world is the very stone that's needed to build the new temple, the temple that's made of flesh and blood of you and me. And if you've ever seen an archway being constructed out of stone, it's really interesting. They build a former and all the stone blocks go on there. And if they simply were all the same shape and went to the top, that wouldn't be, it wouldn't be safe. When you took the, the scaffolding away, it would start to fall down. So they come to the top and there's a gap like that. And there's a stone that actually wouldn't be any good for the rest of these stones at all, because it's the wrong shape. It's tapered. And that's the keystone, and it goes in the top. And they hardly have to hammer it down or anything, and they certainly don't need to put mortar in or things, because that now locks the whole structure in place. So Christians, Jewish Christians being persecuted in the first century, yes, the temple's gone, but you now have a temple made of human beings, which God has prophesied from long, long ago, from the time of Daniel. That's two things to look at. What did it mean to the people that Jesus, uh, who heard Jesus give that, uh, talk, tell that parable? What did it mean to Matthew's community, probably getting on for 70 or 80 years later, after the temple was flattened, and after, certainly, they would have been regarded by the traditional Jewish uh, remnant has been heretical deviance, is causing confusion, as not being Jews at all. Whereas actually, what Jesus is saying is the prophecies of God have been fulfilled. You are now the temple with the cornerstone locked in place. And for us, here in the 21st century, 
we haven't got quite the same situation. But we do have the warning that the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious professionals thought they'd got God sorted. They knew what had to be done in the temple. They knew what the rules were. They knew what to tell people what to do. They could meet in their uh, committees and councils and give directions to other people. And Jesus says, you're not. You don't own this vineyard. You're merely a tenant. We don't own the church. It's not the church that has a mission in the world. It's God who has the mission and therefore has a church to fulfill it. It's Jesus who is the cornerstone. And thinking that you own the show. It's always a temptation for any organisation. You set up synods and committees and structures and we make decisions and we think we're in charge. What Jesus did with that parable was completely unearth their whole concept, what they thought was going to happen. And that small Jewish community gloriously discovered that life was going to be different. Kingdoms come and fall, but the kingly rule of God endures forever. Not made with human hands, but made with you and me. Amen.